Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. Good morning, church. Uh, today's word comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let your said. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and do what only you can do. Good morning, church. Last week, we kicked off a brief series that uh, we're doing over the month of November that is called uh, Doubt It. Uh, This series, one of the hopes of it is to speak into the current and common wrestlings that are experienced when either considering faith or having faith in God. And because we are wanting to be a home for those who do not have a home, it is helpful for us to be well-versed in people who have stories or have questions or doubts, or maybe they resonate with the phrase of deconstruction in their faith journey, or maybe for those who are just discouraged about their faith or discouraged about the Christian faith, as a whole right now. And this series is kind of an offering, an act of love for us to be able to speak into those things, but also be mindful of those things for those who are in this place in their journey. As I uh, mentioned last week, we are kind of in a cultural moment right now where uh, we need to be mindful that there is a generation uh, and it's higher than percentages have looked in the past of uh, those who have grown up in a Christian home or those who have felt at home with the Christian faith who are either reevaluating or walking away from the faith as a whole right now. And one of the best ways we can be a home for people is to be mindful of those things. 
So in the third week of this series, I actually want to talk about faith and belief and how those two things work together. And then the last week of the series, I actually want to talk about uh, the stigma that is around doubts, how we tend to treat it like it's this wall that we hit in our faith when doubts can actually be a doorway in our faith. But today, the question that I want to tackle is what do you do when your mind is working overtime and can't make sense of it all? What do you do when you are inside your head with maybe things that you doubt or question? Maybe you resonate with the sentiment of deconstructing some of your faith, or you just find you are discouraged when you try to think about faith. One of the places that I think is really helpful in beginning this journey is to remember that faith does involve thinking and reasoning, but it's not limited to just those two things. I think remembering stories of the past of brothers and sisters who have gone before us is one of the ways that we actually engage in our life of faith. And I think there is a story of one thinker that I think is quite helpful in this category. Um, He is one of the most known thinkers throughout history. To say he was a genius would be an accurate statement. He was not a man who was well acquainted in matters of faith as much as he felt comfortable in the realms of physics and mathematics. For many of us, we couldn't have gotten through our middle school or high school experience without his name being thrown around. Um, He was a brilliant mind. He had an immaculate Mind and thinking ability and ability to reason. I want to introduce you to him this morning. Uh, His name, we'll find it here. We'll find it here. We're in a series called Doubt It. All right, here we go. Uh, His name uh, is Blaise Pascal. Okay, Blaise Pascal. Look at that man's hair. That is glorious. It's glorious hair. He's known for being one of the greatest mathematicians that is out there. If you know any history about him, some of his work is actually the precursor to the computer that we even have today. What receives a lot of less airtime about Blaze is not what he contributed with math, but at the age of 31, we actually have an account of his life, a moment that solidified his faith in the living, breathing God. And someone who's so well-read and so thoughtful and so rational, you would imagine his journal would be filled with evidences and proofs and reasonings when it comes to God. And when you flip to his journal, you actually find he writes a moment like this. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certainly, certainly heartfelt joy and peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God, your God, the world forgotten and everything except God. He can only be found in the ways thought in the Gospels. 
greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world had not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, joy, joy. Everlasting joy in return for one day's effort on earth. I will never forget thy work. When Blaise Pascal wrote at the age of 31 of his moment that impacted his faith, solidified his faith, he writes not from a place of reason, but he writes lines based on an encounter with the living God. For someone who was so calculated and mechanical as he was in his life, he attributed one of his massive faith moments to actually being an encounter with God, which I think is encouraging for us to hear kind of two things when we hear stories like this. I think the first thing it encourages us is that we remember that people of faith are not people who check their brains at the door whatsoever. To be a person of faith does not mean that you can't be a person of reason or intelligence. As a matter of fact, Christianity has no concern with reason or intelligence. We must remember our history. It's Christians who created spaces like university. It's Christians who actually were some of the earliest people contributing to the fields of science. We have nothing to fear when it comes to intelligence and reason and working and thinking about God in our mind. But what stories like Blaise Pascal also remind us is that faith is not only an exercise of the mind. Notice I didn't say that it's not a part of the journey of faith. Things like learning and reading and thinking and reasoning are always in which we love God. I think sometimes we think about loving God is singing songs to God or serving on behalf of God. And those things are totally true. But also loving God is going to Bible class on Sunday morning. Loving God can actually be found in flipping through the pages of a book, thinking and strengthening about God. Jesus even says, when it comes to your faith, in the one true God. If you want to cultivate a life of love with Him, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And stories like Pascal remind us that it's not only a work of our mind, but also a work of our heart. After he passed, there was a, a journal that was found in which he reflected uh, some of these words. He says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. It is the heart which perceives and not the reasons. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not by reason. Now, Pascal is not indicting reason. Pascal is saying that reason can be a part of our faith with God. But Pascal is also noticing that you are given another organ in your life to be able 
to perceive God in the world. And it's your heart. And the heart is not inferior to reason. Even though much of our backgrounds may have told us that. In other words, God is not all encountered upstairs in our mind, but is also encountered in our hearts. How Jesus promises this and pronounces this is actually found in the Beatitudes that Tanya read this morning. That Jesus would actually say it like this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who see and perceive God are those who have pure hearts. And when Jesus refers to the heart, he's not necessarily referring to those who have sinless hearts will see God, although that is helpful. He's talking about a heart. When he says pure in heart, he says those who are singly devoted to connecting themselves with God and connecting themselves to the things of God. What Jesus reveals about God is God desires for us to see him and to know him. And sometimes that takes heart work, not just mind work. So then the question for us becomes, well, how do we live into this blessing of God? How do we cultivate a pure heart where we not just only approach God with our mind, but we also approach God with our heart. Maybe an image is, uh, is uh, helpful. There is a uh, photo that is in my family that uh, it is one of my favorite photos. Uh, it actually is my dad's side of the family. And uh, my dad's side of the family was uh, kind of a blue collar family. Uh, they spent their entire lives basically building up a, um, a uh, um, oh man, you would think that I'm not a part of this family because I can't actually reach for the words of what it is. Uh, it was a cable company. There we go. Thank goodness. Thank you, Spirit. Um, <laughs> they spent their entire lives basically working and building on this cable business. And uh, it was my grandfather's kind of life work. And uh, what they would do as a family, uh, because it was a family-owned business, is uh, they would take vacations out to cable conventions. And these were back in the days where, like, channels, like, had to represent themselves, you know? So, like, they would go to conferences, and they would hear about things like Animal Planet and that channel. And they're like, oh, man, we got to get that channel. And one of my favorite pictures is at a cable convention where they actually got to take a picture with a celebrity. But it wasn't just any celebrity. It was Leo the Lion that they got to take a picture with. Now, if you don't know who Leo the Lion is, uh, you need to go reflect back on your history for sure. But uh, Leo the Lion is that lion at the very, you know what I'm talking about. He's that lion at the very beginning of movies. Where like before the movie starts, he like roars. They actually took a picture with him. I've got this bad boy as well for us today. Look at him in all his glory. And my father's hair in all his glory as well. Two questions always get asked when people see this picture. The first question, and this is so, so telling of our age uh, today, people go, is that picture real? Yes, that picture 
is real. And then the second question people always ask is how did you take a picture that close to that line? I actually think this picture is a good image of what it can look like for our life with God when we stay completely in our minds. When you look at this picture, it looks like my grandparents and my father are close to the lion, and they semi are, but what you can't see in the picture is there's actually a clear glass cage that's actually right below them, and every time they need Leo to smile and cheese, they'll wave some meat in front of him, and he'll turn, and then you'll get the snapshot. What we don't see is there's a clear glass cage in between them and the lion. The clear glass cage keeps distance from truly being with and experiencing the lion. There was no concern, there was no worry being that close to the line because there was a clear glass cage. Sometimes when we stay in the realm of our minds, of reasoning and thinking, we are producing for ourselves a clear glass cage with God. Faith is not producing a sense of certainty about God in our thinking, but actually encountering the living, breathing God. If all we do is think about God, as helpful and as important as that is, sometimes all we're doing is creating an incubator for our questions and thoughts to just swirl around. It's like trying to come close to the lion, but there's still a clear glass cage. It's like trying to know God, but knowing God objectively. It may be safe, but we will never fully encounter the lion, nor are we passionate about the lion. Because I guarantee you this, anyone who's actually been in a cage with a lion does not forget the experience of being in the cage with the lion. Jesus says, if you want to see the lion, if you want to see God, it requires actually stepping in and dwelling with the lion, not talking about God, but actually talking to God, being with God. Opening our hearts up to God. Because if we don't open our hearts, the world will try to blind our hearts from perceiving that there even is a God that exists, that is present, who loves you and wants to be with you. So then we ask, how do we open our hearts up to God? How do we not let our hearts be blind? How do we move from the upstairs of our head down to the living room of our hearts with God. I actually find there's a, there's a writer by the name of Ronald Rollheiser who I have deeply depended on when it comes to kind of philosophy and also apologetics in the faith. And he kind of gives these three buckets that I think are really helpful of ways that our hearts can sometimes be blinded. Now, he's going to talk, like I said last week, um, he's going to talk in very philosophical terms. And if you were to talk to people who were talking about this, uh, there's kind of three buckets it would fall in. They would say the three things that blind the heart 
would be narcissism, pragmatism, and restlessness. And I want to walk through these three and maybe give it a little more accessible language of if we dwell in this type of place, if we stay outside and produce a glass cage, these are kind of the three heart conditions that will blind us from being pure in heart to see God. Uh, the first, narcissism, or what I want to call just the individualistic mindset is the first way we can be blinded in our heart with God. This is the life where life is consumed all by you. This is kind of the mindset where you operate in the world like anything you would consider or engage, the end goal is you. Community, marriage, work, church is for the end goal of you. It's a life where we're kind of occupied by what's going on in our world and our concerns and our money issues and our worries and how our lives are going to end. You know, two ways that this manifests, and please hear me in this first one, I'm not critiquing your neighborhood whatsoever if your neighborhood has this policy, but a really good example of this is neighborhoods that have garage door policies where you can only keep your garage door open for so many minutes. That's a very individualistic mindset. It's a way of us as a society saying, I want to exist in a world where I do not see your things and I'm not reminded of what you have going on in your world because it's about my world. And where this mentality blinds our hearts is that we're so preoccupied with supplying what we think we need in the world, we don't have time to see who actually occupies this world. We go around wondering if there's a God, but we can never actually lift our eyes to see if that God is there. You know, my wife tells a story when she was in uh, high school. Uh, she actually got to go on a trip with her family, a once in a lifetime trip to Hawaii. And she still regrets that trip till today because she said she was in high school and uh, she's in Hawaii, she's in a beautiful place, and uh, she just started dating a boy. And she said, I spent 80% of my time in Hawaii talking to this boy, who they ended up breaking up two weeks later because, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> small detail of the story. Uh, <laughs> but she goes, I regret, there was all this beauty around me this entire time, and I was so focused on this one small thing. The individualistic mindset is a life where we're so concerned about ourselves, we miss the signs and beauty of God all around us. It taints our hearts. The second one, pragmatism. I'm going to call this one the go-go mentality. This one kind of gets in Zane's world a little bit and doesn't like it. This is the obsession of constantly doing. This is the impulse, and this one's deep underneath society. This is the impulse that what is true is what works. Therefore, what is valid in society is output and result. We feel good about ourselves when we are achieving, producing, and contributing, and we feel bad about ourselves when we're not doing those things. Efficiency is the goal of life. And if you need a world example, AI is a great one. We should be slowing down right now. 
and asking about the implications of AI. But in a society where efficiency is the end goal, we're going to keep going no matter what it may cost us or what we may trade in our society. The way this blinds the heart is it puts an emphasis on doing and it disregards simply being or existing. The way this manifests in our faith is when we say to ourselves, we need to be doing something for God. We need to be out there. And that is true. But a world that's dominated by go-go, that's by efficiency, that's by achievement, has no room for things like prayer. Because prayer isn't something that you're doing and achieving. It's being with God. And we, we can never show up to prayer to simply sit in silence with God because we're too busy performing. At some point, we may question, is there a God that's existent and present in my life? And we can't see because we're so on the go. The last one, restlessness. I'm going to call this the always craving mentality. This is an obsession with experience. This is a life that is always seeking something new or different. In the words of a Christian thinker by the name of Thomas Merton, he said, this is the life where ordinary is not enough. That we actually believe wisdom is achieved through experiencing all people in all places in life. And we will break ourselves trying to have all the experiences that we need in life. Because underneath what we tell ourselves is unless we experience every pleasure that we yearn to taste, we will be unhappy and our life didn't count. And we've known this not to be true. There are some things that take time to experience. There are other things within our design that maybe aren't experiential for everyone in our lives. I love how thinkers and theologians talk about today in past generations, they would look at the story of Adam and Eve and there's kind of an instinct that's like, ooh, just because something's created and designed doesn't mean everything is meant to be experienced. But for the current cultural generation moment that we're in, we find it wisdom to not go experience and taste everything, even if it may cost us something. We live our lives convincing ourselves that what we need is more time to experience more things, more trips, more houses, more things to fill our house. But what we really need is time to experience the things we've already been gifted in life. But the always craving mentality will fill up all the room in our heart. But the invitation of Jesus is to simplify your heart. The invitation of Jesus is you will see God if you cultivate a pure heart. You know, some of the earliest Jesus followers in the first couple hundred years, when they would speak of a pure heart, they actually dedicated their lives to going out and purifying their hearts. 
and the contemplatives, those who would go out and dedicate their lives, they would say, there's kind of two prongs. If you want to live with a heart that's pure, that sees God. The two elements would simply be receiving and thanking. Receiving and thanking. Receiving from God and then thanking God. These are the two elements where you actually get in the cage with the lion. Not simply thinking about God, but sharing life with God. The first in receiving, if you want to receive from God, the first is giving serious attention to the inventories of messages and content that you are receiving in your heart. Because every day you're receiving things from society, from people you love, from the culture around you. You know, Barna released a study that still kind of disturbs me. They said for my generation, for millennials, that we consume around 3,000 hours of digital content. And Barna has actually said that of those 3,000 hours, 150 of them is Christian. That's a 20 to 1 ratio. If we're struggling to see God or accept the narrative of God, know the realities that we see in the scriptures, then we have got to change the input that we are having in our lives. And if you talk to anyone my age and you ask them, this has been echoed all the time, do you have a problem? Most people my age would be like, yes, technology and shows are a problem. But they will usually also always say, you know who doesn't know it's a problem? My parents and my grandparents. We're disproportionate in our intake. That we need lives that are saturated in prayer and scripture if we want to receive from God. Christians before us, they've been honest. This is not a complicated journey. It's just a hard one. It's a life that contains more prayer and silence and fasting and participating in suffering love. And the second one of thanking God. This is getting serious about naming to God what God has truly given to us. You know, psychologists would say for our hearts and minds, our hearts are kind of like either Teflon or Velcro when it comes to good and bad in our lives. That when bad comes into our lives, we treat it like Velcro. We hold on to it. But the good things that happen in our life, they're like Teflon. They just kind of bounce off of us. One psychologist even said that when it comes to encounters with people, it takes five good encounters to counteract one bad encounter with someone. One of the ways we cultivate a purified heart is we actually name to God what we're thankful for. I think for some of us, maybe we thought that that ended when we were in grade school, but there's something to actually naming out loud to God, naming to God what you are thankful for. So I want to finish by actually just making it very practical. I try not to just talk about the what without talking about the how. So the question would be, okay, if I find myself in a place where I am discouraged, where I need to move from my head to my heart, what does that realistically look like? Um, I think that happens in a couple steps. This is one way. This is not the only way. 
Um, but this is a way I would actually encourage you this week to actually practice cultivating your heart. Uh, the first would be this. Uh, you would need to grab a physical Bible. And don't get me started about electronic Bibles. You need to grab a physical Bible. And you need to grab your phone. And if you were going to do this this week, what I would recommend is you would need to carve 10 minutes in your morning. And yes, it needs to be somewhere in the morning. 10 minutes where one, you grab your Bible and your phone. You take your phone and you set a timer for 10 minutes. Because if you don't have that timer, you're going to be thinking in your mind the whole time, when is this thing over? You set the timer for 10 minutes and you put the phone across the room. It'll be okay. Be okay over there. You put the phone across the room. Then you take your Bible. And I would recommend this verse in particular. Turn to Galatians 2.20. And get really quiet. And then this is going to feel ridiculous to you. I'm just going to name it. It's going to feel really ridiculous to you. Take Galatians 2.20. And the first time, read it out loud, loud. Like you're a crazy person. And wait. Then say it at a normal voice. Again. And wait. And then lastly, whisper it. And simply see where the Lord takes you. Now, what's going to happen for some of us is that we're instantly going to have all these thoughts of things that we never have time to be able to think about. So we're thinking about, did I do the HEB pickup order? Did I actually make the plans in my schedule? Ooh, I forgot to call so-and-so. All those things. I want you to know, those are normal. And don't kick them to the curb. Recognize them and then set them down. Write them on a note if you need to. But take 10 minutes. To simply sit and dwell with the words, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when that 10 minute timer goes off, before you pick up your phone, Simply say out loud to God three things you're thankful for. That may sound too simplistic to you. That may sound weird to you. Some of you may be like, one verse, we got to get that bad boy going. I need a couple chapters to actually knock down here. No, no, no. One verse. Because we're not just trying to go here. We're trying to move to here. Say it out loud three times. Spend the 10 minutes in silence. Name the three things you're thankful for. That's how we get in the cage with the lion. What we think that we need is explanations of God, but God knows what we need is encounter with a living God. He wants a life where we're not just glancing at him occasionally, but he wants our gaze to be captivated for our hearts to see how he's working in our lives. 
around our lives. So in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And uh, I encourage you to take the space. Maybe as you're singing the words, to ask the Lord to remind you of things that you are thankful for, of his work and activity in your life. Because as you sing, as you receive and as you thank, you may just find yourself actually in cage with a lion. Let's sing. <laughs>